Are you looking to simplify your investments? Check out BMO ETFs. Your asset allocation can have a major impact on whether you will meet your financial goals. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to asset allocation ETFs to complement their portfolios. BMO offers easy-to-use solutions such as the BMO Growth ETF, BMO Balance ETF, BMO All Equity ETF, and more. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically. What was once a popular mutual fund strategy is now available through an ETF with the introduction of the T6 units. T6 units provide a 6% annual payout on a monthly basis, helping retirees meet their cash flow needs. This is available on their balanced and growth asset allocation ETFs. Regular rebalancing means you can spend less time planning your life and more time living it. Learn more at bmoetfs.com. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get a key to the Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 84. As always, joined by the three amigos. We've got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, with his uh, Patagucci jacket on, and Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Keith, what's going on, buddy? It's 30 degrees here in Vancouver. You're wearing a, a Patagucci. Yeah, no, it's probably, uh, you put a minus sign. We had we had minus three, minus four last night here in Halifax. Jesus. That's it. I can't tell you why or why not. No Maybe heat in your climate. house, eh? Hey? Well, <laughs> yeah, climate change is getting you. So yeah, so you guys, if you you may not know how we do our uh, heat down here in Halifax, but most of it is furnace, right? It's just good old, good old oil being burned or enjoyed, I guess. Rich, you want to put it that way? So uh, yeah, but we usually turn it off, you know, uh, May one. Then in September, October, you know, you turn it back on again. But there was a lot of frost on the roofs and stuff here this morning. Rich, are you running? You guys are running on coal over there in the UK. No, natural gas, natural gas, imported natural gas because uh, Rishi Sunak reversed Liz Truss's ban on fracking. Um, So natural gas, uh, nuclear power from France and the rest, and maybe Belgium. Loads of solar and wind on good days, of course. Today's a beautiful day in London, so let's wrap this up. I want to go drink beer in the street. Wasn't um, wasn't wasn't there a G seven meeting out like this week saying that we need to uh, ramp yes. up natural gas? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Our dear leader has been natural gaslighting us. Zing, that one's for you, Keith. Uh, yeah, the Germanys basically went cap in hand again to the G seven and said, "Please, please, please, can you ramp up your natural gas production?" Uh, Canada is, I think, sixth largest producer in the world. The U.S. is a huge, huge, larger, large, uh, huge producer of natural gas. Um, it'll happen. It'll happen eventually, whether JT thinks it's a good idea or not. There's no That's business case, though. Yeah, well, <laughs> J- Justin Trudeau did not do an MBA, and neither did his uh, dear leader deputy. So, uh, but we'll get to her later. But what about yeah. the guy, uh, the guy from Quebec with the beard who climbed a CN Tower, who's actually in charge of all this? Uh, yeah, he's not exactly the smartest guy either. I, oh, the one who yeah. doesn't want to do nuclear power? Yeah. Him? He doesn't want to do anything. No, yeah, no he want to do anything. Apparently, he walked back his uh, stance on nuclear. Ah, well. Yeah, he's seen that's, the light. It's becoming quite popular recently. Yeah, well, so <laughs> we'll get into that. But uh, yeah. 
Yeah, as always, we'll uh, open it up. We got some uh, stats here out of the uh, Canadian Real Estate Association on the national housing figures. Um, we chatted about Vancouver, Toronto last week. So nationally, uh, home sales were up 11.3% month over month in April. That's a se- seasonally adjusted. Of course, if you look at it on a year-over-year basis on an actual number basis, so ni- the sales were 19.5% below April of 2022. Of course, that was probably a pretty hard comp. I think that was like a record April last year. Um, but yeah, number of new homes on the market, which continues to be a trend we've talked about on the show numerous times, uh, but new listings on a national basis for the month of April, uh, hit another 20 year low, 20 year low for new listings across this country. Uh, so of course, you know, sales are arguably, you can see in the data here, rebounding, but you still got very low inventory. So naturally prices are pushing higher. You had the, uh, home price index, which is, Hedonically adjusted, smoothed out, adjust for volatility, et cetera. That climbed 1.6% month over month, um, which is a pretty big move. 1.6% on a month over month basis. If you start sort of annualizing that, uh, something that you would think the Bank of Canada might be concerned about, which I'm sure we'll get into again in this show. That's nearly 20% annualized rate, right? I mean, just a quick, quick and dirty maths, right? Yeah, so it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's been, so what I'll say is the last three, four months, it has been pretty gangbusters. I, I think like it's, I would call it more than like, you typically do get an uptick in seasonal sort of like pricing. Um, but I would say to me, it feels more than just like a seasonal bump. Like there's, there's been, I still think the biggest thing behind it is the inventory story people not coming to market. Um, but there's no question that prices in every market have been very, very strong. It's like, because we had so much, uh, you know, volatility. And then 21, 22. So I think because there's been so much volatility in, in 2020 and 21 and 22, you know, when you're doing comp data, because of the, you know, they shut down the global economy that time which is proving, anyway, I think you guys know how I feel about that. Uh, but I know like a lot of data now, like in, in my world, like we'll go back and look at 18 and 19 to try to get a more reasonable perspective. And I assume, it's, especially Steve, you know, with, with the housing market, like you're doing, you know, year over year comps, you know, with, with 22, which was a bad year, right? And then in 21, but relative to 18 and 19, the numbers are still awesome, right? I mean, in terms yeah. of, increasing again is that correct yeah the, yeah the, so like the housing sales figures now like they i mean at one point you know seven eight nine months ago they were actually at 20 year lows and it was like you know sentiment was horrible we talked about this like i said the bottom of the market was arguably in the fall of 2022 uh right now you've got sales volumes rebounding essentially to like more or less kind of the 10-year average um so slightly below so yeah sales activity really on a historical basis, isn't that bad right now? Um, can I ask you a quick oh, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like I'm in a, in a small, small town here. Um, but the inventory is very low. So if you get one house that goes on the market down in our neighborhood, like it's literally, it sells in hours. Like it's literally 48 hours and it's done. And of course, then that resets the market for everyone else. So you, you're looking at it. But it, it, again, I mean, everyone knows it, it is an inventory story, but just from an anecdotal perspective, you know, we, we always look at real estate where we live, but there's nothing on the market where I am. 
Yeah. And this is like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think this is a common theme in pretty much any market, almost globally, really. Um, you know, we've talked about it last week, you know, happening across the U S Australia, like, you, you know, you pick your, you pick your major housing market and, and it's the same story. There's no inventory. So I, I think it's going to get resolved at some point, but uh, you know, the, the next sort of question here is obviously what happens on the interest rate side. Um, so I'm sure we let's, I think we should get into that because we had CPI, Canada CPI inflation data come out uh, hotter than expected, Rich. I, I know you're probably following the numbers pretty closely, but um, what, yeah. what do you see in there? Well, I thought it was a really, I thought it was really kind of a, it, every once in a while you get a really like delicious print. And of course, one number does not make a trend, you know, so, you know, heavy back next month when it comes out. But what I thought, I thought it was like a really interesting sort of um a number and why it's because year month on month it went up at the highest pace um in six or seven months so since almost since last june or even more so the, let's just go quickly over the numbers is that okay steve and then what we can sort of dive in so yeah yeah, um, yeah. headline inflation uh rose from 4.3 to 4.4 that was more than expected so uh, so the analyst expectations or economist expectations said they was going to fall to 4.1 i think i'm trying to do this off memory and it rose instead of fall so that thought was interesting and then core there's different types of core there's core x food and in energy there's core um x like eight most volatile items and that sort of um that both of those rose month on month and so you have the year on year number that started to fall less quickly. I know again, it's, it's kind of annoying when you started, but on the chart, it seems it's a lot easier to, to, to identify what's going on. And I'll, we'll share that obviously. But what I thought was really interesting was just the month on month number rose again, the seasonally adjusted month on month number for headline rose a lot, six point zero point six. That's the most in since last June of last year. And there's lots of little tidbits that I thought were really interesting. One, of course, it's the energy component. So energy has been a major, major drag on headline and core. Um, energy, depending on how you calculate it, is about almost 10% of the core basket. And you know, at one point, it was contributing something like 4% um, of the entire core. The core, jump in core was 4% with just, just energy. And that has collapsed, obviously, as energy prices have sort of softened. And you know, one of the things we talked about a couple months ago is that you beware of that contribution. It doesn't go from four to negative four; it goes from four to zero, and in some cases, might actually start to go up again. So that was a really big, that was really interesting. Transportation is the same. That was the second largest month-on-month -month change. Um, but of course, I know you want me to get to the mortgage and interest payments. But the other thing that I thought was before we get to that, I thought it was really interesting was that a lot of the um, the Bank of Canada uh, rate cut expectations have basically been totally taken out of the market. And so just it was just a couple of months ago that um, that Tiff Macklem was basically taking a victory lap saying that he had sort of defeated this inflation monster and, you know, that we're on pause and whatever. And it was just I thought it was one of the more interesting things is that the forward overnight index swap. So how you bet on the future path of interest rates in Canada have gone from sort of 4% in 12 months to almost uh, 4.75. So now they've priced in th basically three hikes in the next 12 months. I'm sorry, excuse me, that's one, right. One so hike. 
That's right. Excuse me. One hike. Sorry. Sorry. So, but the, the Delta, the Delta is three hikes over he's, the next 12 He's months. shaking his head over here. <laughs> no, I didn't screw that up. I didn't screw <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I misspoke. But, but anyway, just so, so, I mean, listen, it's, it's just one data point. It's, I get it's early, but I thought it was just really, really interesting. And then the shelter component, you'll be happy to know. And we'll get into this, I'm sure. Well, Steve, well, yeah, we'll get into this. Down. This is going to lead to a larger conversation. But Keith, I kind of want your your input, at least, uh, you know, from the market's perspective. Like, obviously, you know, coming into this, I think everyone, to Rich's point, it was like, okay, uh, inflation's kind of behind us. Uh, you know, I think I was reading before the re- release, like a week earlier, RBC had projected like headline inflation could come down to like three nines. Now you're sub four. And uh, of course, it's a surprise to the upside and really sh- shook market. So I'm kind of curious your thoughts. I mean, first of all, I think we always need some words of wisdom. And I think <laughs> what, what's really great is that, you know, guys, life is is very short. So um, make sure you spend as little time as possible on the internet arguing with complete strangers about interest <laughs> rates. Every day I'm on there. <laughs> wow. I mean, like you just imagine like such the conversation and people get triggered about it. You know, this conversation about interest rates and where they're going. Uh, but at the same time, though, that demonstrates how important this is. So it, it's an important conversation uh, for for everyone. I mean, if you own a home, if you're exposed to variable rates, you're you're exposed to it and you should absolutely have an interest in it. If you're managing money, you should absolutely have an interest in it. If you don't have an interest in this, then probably shouldn't be managing money. And, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, but it, again, it's just this fascinating time with what's happening around the world. Um, so now that, you know, the narrative has switched from, hey, uh, you know, inflation has been has slowed enough for the central banks to stop raising rates. I don't want to say they fixed inflation because you know, prices are not going to go back to where they were two years ago. I mean, that's not happening, but that's the impression, you know, that they sort of give you. Uh, and now all of a sudden the conversation is, wow, inflation is still really strong. And, you know, we always joke about to support your view in the investment world, you just strip out or add on a number of different factors and, you know, it's, it's voila. You we're going to get into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have your story there. You can say whatever you want. Uh, but our, you know, I'll talk about from a market perspective, because we, we did a pretty good strategy change, maybe five or six trading days ago. You called it on last week's pod. So kudos, I mean, kudos to you. Yeah, it was, you know, like, occasionally on the podcast, so I'll allude to something that we're all in the middle of doing. And then I'll say I'll explain it more, you know, in the future, because, you know, you're not going to talk about your trade you're doing, you're doing now for current clients. Uh, and then sometimes the podcast audience is front running your trade. Yeah. And then you forget about it, of course. So then you don't talk about it. Or if it just didn't work out, you you don't talk about it either. Um, but we'll go into that. But first of all, like just carrying off from, from Rich's uh, you know, overview, what happened with, with inflation data. There's now enough evidence there to suggest that, you know, maybe they should start hiking rates again. Um, <laughs> so I can tell you it's, it's a very difficult thing for central bankers to do because once they stop that they've always been stopped and then the next it's just inevitable that the next rate move has to be down like unless there's a crisis specific to your economy and and banking system or or currency um but right now everyone's saying oh well because the aussies did it but they stopped way too early of course with, with hindsight we can see that so i'm still under the view that the bank of canada that they have stopped and that's it and we'll Hey, we get more data, then you know they'll they'll change their view. 
So we have the next meeting coming out here in June, so in, in a few weeks. Uh, Rich is correct. Some markets are suggesting that rates may go up by, you know, they go up by 25s, of course. But right now, I think we'll price about 20 basis points increase by, which I think is October, September, October, I think it is. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. 20 basis points in six months. So whatever, five plus yeah, three is. That range. Five so plus that six, so November. Yes, yeah, so that's just the market way of saying that, hey, there's now a probability that, that they will hike again. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how we go. And uh, what we know, though, right now, if, if let's just say we're the Bank of Canada and we're looking at this, and if we hike rates again, maybe maybe that's enough to really create that hard landing, what they need. Because that's if you want to get prices yeah. down, you have to do that. Then you have the banks telling them, and if you hike rates one more time, like we're going to lose it. Our mortgage portfolio is just going to like you know take it at the side of the head. So it, it's not a it's not as easy as saying, hey, inflation is still sticky. You know, we should hike rates again. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Now, from my perspective, if I'm going to look at the data and give me a reason not to hike rates, I just simply look what's been happening with, with the core data. Yeah, and we that's right. Four four down to four two, four six down to four two. In the previous months. Uh, year-over-year data for the core median number rich it was that was revised yeah. down four six to four five so again there's there's data there to suggest that the rate of change you know rich loves numbers that it's it, it's it's slowing but it's not a slam dunk so i'm still in the camp that they're done and uh once again you like to argue with strangers on on the internet then you know have <laughs> at it but we'll see where we go though next month but it's 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 a real tricky situation because the fed is set up they're going to hike one more time i suspect and they may not even stop there so we'll see where where she goes you think that you think the fed's got one more and then they're done or what's your what's your take uh you just go one meeting at a time right now I, i'm going to be shocked if you don't do another one and um which is wild was... given all these banking stress issues yeah, I know, but that's how messy everything is. Well, there's, I mean, there's data on that, right? So if you look at, I mean, we're getting a little sidetracked. I think we should get stick to Canadian inflation. But if you look at the, the deposits for small banks, again, in the data, it's called the H8 tables. All this stuff is, by the way, freely available if you're welcome, if you're interested in digging it up. And the Federal Reserve have these H8 tables and they produce this daily data weekly. It's released on a Wednesday. And they split it out between small commercial banks, which is the 4,800 or whatever, and then the large commercial uh, commercial banks. And if you look at the the deposits for small commercial banks, they actually stopped falling a couple of weeks ago, and they've actually quite they've stabilized. And so they, the they prepare that yeah they prepare that data the whole seven days before. They have it available on Tuesdays, right. but they release it on Wednesdays. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> that's a terrible joke. Um, but anyway, but back, okay. back to the inflation thing. I think listen, I, I'm not like I don't. Just to clarify my point earlier, it's, I just think it's interesting when things change. The delta for me is what I find fascinating. I, I don't think, it, you know, one data point is not going to materially change, you know, um, the Bank of Canada's math or, you know, he's not going to come sheepishly to the next meeting and say, you know, we got it all wrong, et cetera, et cetera. What I like to do is I like to look at sort of delta and, and the change. And, and, you know, if we get a couple of these sort of strung together, I think it'll be something worth talking about in a couple of months. But um, um that's a good point, Keith. Do you have the uh, you know you have the uh, special Bloomberg subscription there? What's the uh, what are the current rate hike probabilities for the BOC at the next meeting? Well, I think Rich just went through them loosely. Uh, just well, I'm just curious. Here. I mean, this is getting it's I, maybe it perhaps is getting interesting enough to throw a Twinkie bet on it. 
Oh, I don't know. No, I think we have to wait for. I think you'd have to wait for another one. I think if you, if you saw so that you know we talked about core that we're going to talk about mortgage interest rate, mortgage uh, payments, costs, and how yeah. that affect uh, how they affect inflation. I think you you know you need you need a couple of these to go against what you know the language has been or the prevailing attitude. You know, for for them to really start to to feel hot under the collar. I think. Well, this I'll is probably. Yeah, I'll do the bet depending on how Steve is feeling. <laughs> right, I mean, tw Twitter. Twitter says otherwise. Twitter. Twitter tells me a fifty beeps is coming at the next meeting. No, no, that's that's dumb. <laughs> that's not happening. Yeah. So Man, right, a, right now, it's a it's a twenty nine point eight percent. Twenty nine point eight percent probability of, yeah. of a hike. Not zero. Which means, Rich, there's a seventy point two percent chance. Not don't make fun of my terrible arithmetic but there's let's 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 talk more about the uh do you want to get into the, the yeah, mortgage interest payment I, stuff well i do want to push back oh, wait, on, i'm on... gonna go back to the trade thing though uh oh right so go last i mean because steve introduced the, uh, the idea that you know long, long rates started shooting up last week uh a couple of the models that we have were suggesting that it could happen as well the probability was a lot higher so to give you an idea how to take advantage of that in a, in a portfolio uh, you can do two things. So one, you can reduce your exposure to anything that's sensitive to long rates going up. So if you hold a, a bond portfolio with, with, you would just say duration, so say eight to 10, 20, 30 year, you know, average maturity, uh, you know, that's going to get hit, you know, pretty hard if rates go up. Uh, so we had some exposure to that. So we sold, so we swapped that out completely to, uh, we moved it down the yield curve. And uh, at the same time, there are opportunities to take positions that will actually make money in, in the bond market if long rates went up. So we, so we did that trade last week and uh, it, it's a pure tactical trade. It's not long-term because we're still under the, I, we still have the idea and the narrative that we are going to hit a recession coming up. And once we get over this, you know, next big thing we're talking about, which is really the debt ceiling, inflation story first, then the debt ceiling, and then we'll go to something else. But long-term rates can really shoot down. But there was an opportunity last night to do this trade. So we're probably up 3% on the long position that we made. And we probably saved another 3% by, by getting out of one. So, uh, but again, what's, what's there your are tools available right now in, in the market where if, if you identify different opportunities, anybody can absolutely you know do something to save yourself some points here. Yeah, there's things to do right now. What what's your, what's your biggest takeaway right now? Like, so the big story, right, is again circulating on Twitter. Oh, inflation is proving to be really sticky, and you got this debt ceiling, and and so we've seen this recent surge in in bond yields, right? I mean, again, I sit here as a as a housing guy watching Canada's five year uh, bond yield, and that's up. I don't know what it's up. 40, 50 basis points in the last uh, week and a half, two weeks. So, uh, and of course, that's going to start pushing our mortgage rates back up. Um, so for those that are, you know, about to buy a house or whatever, you might want to lock in a rate here with one of your lenders. But Keith, what, what, like, what's your take is on, on the, the largest, most reasoning for this moving higher? Like, what is the big takeaway here? Is this just short-term volatility that you feel resolves itself once sort of the debt ceiling gets figured out as it typically does. Um, what's your takeaway? Yeah, I mean, obviously, 
it's a narrative. So it can be, your narrative can be right or wrong, right? You just don't know. But our view on what's been happening recently is that, it, again, you go back to the whole central bank conversation. And it, it again, is the concept that inflation may not be coming down as, as fast as what everyone has wanted. Therefore, central banks can remain hawkish or become even more hawkish than they were. And so whereas like everyone's playing, you know, the, the long end of the curve to make money from recession coming on. And that's what, that's what we did a few months ago. We, we, we went there as well. Um, you know, sooner or later, you just get, you know, markets are not linear. Like they, they do move both directions. Uh, but sometimes you can get markets that are so overbought or oversold. And then the, the slightest little narrative will change that can cause everyone to running to the side of the boat. A good example of this right now is in the food agricultural market. So the three main guys, corn, soy, and weeds, I mean, th those guys are just getting throttled over the last 10 days or so. And um, if you look at, you can see the positioning in it or managers long or short. You know, most people are short now in wheat and corn and it's, it's gotten hit so hard. You just know that the opportunity is there for that to swing higher again. So again, just everyone, just you have to remember, it's not this, you know, buy, hold and prosper nonsense that people talk about. There are opportunities you know, to do things when they move along. But the rate story is is the um, is come front and center, and I think this is going to change as soon as we get through the debt ceiling. Yeah, you uh, think this will challenge. resolve itself? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an important takeaway. Yeah, but yeah, you know, Rich, it's kind of circling back here um, to play, you know, devil's advocate is is uh, yeah, mortgage interest costs, right? So by the Bank of Canada raising interest rates uh, obviously that's increasing your your the cost of borrowing and and especially on the variable mortgage rate side and so um, was it mortgage interest costs are up 28 percent um, which was one of the largest contributors to the CPI sort of inflation print and um, yeah I think that's that's playing a huge part so my understanding is if you stripped out the if you stripped out the cost the uh, mortgage interest costs going up, which, because again, Bank of Canada is essentially solely responsible for creating that. Uh, April's CPI inflation would have been 3.6%. That's right, but it also would have stopped falling. So after months and months and months of a decline in that year-on-year -year right, rate, even if you strip out the mortgage interest payments, you've stopped falling and now bounced up. And that's what I mean by that Delta is always super interesting for, for me. But just taking a couple of steps back, shelters, we know, is the uh, largest weight in the core CPI basket. It's about 40%. And it's peak, thank goodness. Um, and, it's, and its contribution is slow. But within shelter, you've got a bunch of these, you know, you have like, there's also housing. Um, and then and then that's also started to fall, right? It peaked at around six and a half or whatever. Now it's down to 5.4. And then you've got this owner accommodation, which is, I think, a part of where that interest payment kind of feeds into. You got the household operations, which is like servicing the house, quote unquote, which continues to be quite sticky at 3.2. But within all of that is the rental component. And the rental component is, why is that connected to the interest payment? Well, because as interest payments and interest rates become really high and become prohibitively expensive for people to buy and excel, people often shift from a home buyer to a home renter. And, and so like, so it actually can help higher interest rates can actually stimulate higher rental demand. Does that make sense, uh, Steve? And so, but there's also the fact that, again, not to belabor this point, because people who've listened to us regularly will know, you know, you have record immigration. 
and and you have a limited housing supply. And you know, if you if you if you plot that population growth, which is driven entirely, I think it's ninety six percent or ninety four point six percent or whatever it is, by immigration, on you plot that on top of this rental num rental growth number. You know, you've got the double whammy of higher interest rates plus population plus limited supply really, really pushing up rents, which is why, although like, you know, we've talked about this before, how shelter may have peaked and shelter starting to come down. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised if that starts to slow because of what you've described, uh, Steve, um, and it'll just be really interesting to how it goes throughout the summer. To that point on the population side, I people need to stop sending me emails with links and Twitter DMs about we don't have a housing supply issue. It's just, it's insane. People keep saying to me, oh, you know, we should stop, you know, new housing supply. It's so expensive. It's not creating any affordability. What's well, like, it's expensive. It's brand new, it's brand <laughs> new housing. It's like you go hire the trades. People go hire the electrical, the plumber, the HVAC guys and tell me if they're willing to cut their salaries. Like that's just what it costs to build new construction. But if you're going to add a million people a year into this country, What's the solution not to build because the new housing that you're building is too expensive? Like it's all it's all relative trickle down, right? People will then the people that have the means to to upgrade will leave their old rental, for example, and they'll go into the new building or they'll leave their old house and go into the new house. So it's like it's all a relative game. It's the dumbest thing. And I, I honestly like it's it's quite fascinating to see that people are still circulating this and sending it to me on Twitter and and like I said, emails and uh, it's it's a horrendous narrative. So once once again, we need to remind everyone that life is short, and uh, you should spend as little <laughs> time as possible on the internet. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I mean, Rich, though, to your point, right? And, and uh, I mean, on the rental side, my view again is like if if you didn't have a housing, let's say, shortage or not enough housing, I think you would argue that if you had an abundance of housing, you wouldn't see this kind of rent growth that we're seeing, right? Like, you, right. So if you have supply, the specula- supply and demand, <laughs> right. if you have the, right. if you have the speculation, right on, on the resale side. So let's say the resale market is obviously, I think you can make an argument that it's definitely speculative, right? People believe higher prices will continue to go up. So naturally they're willing to bid the resale prices higher, but rents are a function of supply and demand and basically how much you can pass on to your tenant. So they have to have sufficient wages and wage growth in order to pass on that rent. Yes, tenants are struggling to afford them, but they are making they 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 are making the rent payments. But also, it's about like about how people perceive. You know, this is why you know. Look, if you look at consumer, if you look at um, re, uh, retail sales, we've talked about this before. If you look at retail sales per capita, that's been going down. If you look at personal consumption expenditure, that's that's peaked. Uh, so household personal consumption expenditure, that's like a national income account number, a top-down way of seeing how much households are consuming on their goods and their services per capita. Those numbers are going down. And so, um, and so you could see people are starting to spend more and more on their housing. It makes sense, right? That's going to be the one of the last things that you choose to cut cut spending on, right? You know, Keith will rent a, a 150 meter yacht, and that'll be, you know, he'll cut that spending before he, you know, stops paying his mortgage. Not that he would have mortgage, or whatever. You know what I mean? Like you have discretionary income and non discretionary income, and rent, housing, utility bills. Those are all what I would consider sort of non discretionary income. You 
pay for that, whether you like it or not. And you squeeze and cut your other spending in order to afford that. I mean, that's, I don't think that's profoundly, uh, that's not a profound statement. I think everyone sort of knows that, don't they, Steve? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think rents though, like I said, are ultimately a function of, of wages. And I, I think like what we're seeing now is this wage growth. I, I do think it's, I think, Rent, like I almost feel like rents are kind of like one of the last thing to go, which is like, because as you get that, like, you know, wages are, are very like, they're, they're a lagging indicator, right? Yep. The like market get, is a lagging indicator. That's right. right. And so I think like, as the as wages going up like that, that you get that final push through into the rents. And so I, I don't know, I, I'm still like, I know like the big media thing is like, oh my gosh, rent growth, it's picking up. Like, you know, we've got, we do, as of right now, we have a sub 2% national vacancy rate in the rental market. Uh, so all these, all these housing markets, pretty much all across Canada reporting significant rent growth. I still think that's kind of a bit of a, a lagging indicator. I think as the labor market deteriorates, you'll see uh, you'll see some softness coming in the rental market. Uh, you know, as I said, you have to be able to pass that on. So it depends on the strength of the economy and and on wages. And so I can give you an example. Is like, you know, people in Vancouver and Toronto maybe are less accustomed to this. It's not a notion that comes up, but like, think about uh, Calgary. From basically, you know, 2016-ish onwards, like there was no rent growth for like five years. In fact, rents actually fell. So what happened was you saw a lot of people that had, uh, you know, um, uh, a detached house with a basement suite that was renting out. You would we actually saw as the rental market became oversupplied because because the economy in in Calgary, for example, hit the dumps post the uh, oil slump, and there became basically an oversupply of housing. People left the basement suites. Cause they're like, well, I can leave this basement suite and get a nice one bedroom, uh, condo for the same price now because rents are dropping. And so landlords, um, not only stopped raising rents, but in some cases are actually starting to discount rents in order to keep their tenants in place, which is not something people in like say Vancouver and Toronto are used to. They just think, Oh, I can just keep, you know, my, my mortgage interest costs are up. So I'm going to raise my rent. And uh, like I said, it's still a function of supply and demand. So I think that's, we'll see how that comes back into balance over the next uh, 18 months here. I think there's just like one more thing that we need to clarify. The reason we harp on, or the, I harp on this population thing is because we have two important elements of the government that are effectively pulling in different directions. We have one part of the government that is, dead set on having a population growth of let's say two and a half two percent more and the average population growth before that was you know one one and a bit and then we have another part of this government uh, the technocrats who are trying to raise interest rate in order to combat inflation but one is you know huge deficit spending population growth those are two are clearly inflationary and two is the inflate the raising interest rates that's trying to combat this inflationary impulse. And it's not, you know, it's not, it's not linear. You know, there's going to be, I would argue, there's going to be different data points, different parts of the cycle. One is more important than the other. But generally you have, you know, one, per, one person on the canoe is paddling one way and the other person is paddling the other way. So if tomorrow, if, you know, if the Canadian government, federal government said, you know, we're going to have not have any immigration at all. It's going to go to zero, literally zero. But then a lot of those inflationary impulses would just melt away naturally, especially on things like rent and housing, blah, blah, blah. And similarly, I think that if, if, the, if the, the Bank of Canada were to cut interest rates by X amount, then we would have another speculative boom, I think, in housing, because again, 
that other person on the canoe is paddling in a different direction. And so I think it's it's this it's we're in a weird and wonderful spot where you have, you know, the two people on the opposite canoe paddling in different directions, which is causing, I think, I don't know, friction. I think it's making it difficult to understand and forecast. I think it's 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 it makes really interesting discussion. But again, I, I think that that's sort of those are the two sort of main forces at play. And I think it's it's not a, the reason it's hard is because it's not clear who's winning and who's losing that battle. Well, speaking of that, I think we should uh, <laughs> loop in a conversation here that uh, there was a viral clip going around on Twitter um, from uh, one of the uh, MPs. Uh, his name is Adam Chambers. He basically asked uh, Finance Minister uh, Christopher Freeland basically what was the cost uh, of the federal government's debt servicing costs, obviously interest rates rising uh, unexpectedly in, in many cases. Uh, and so he asked in the... Um, uh, house there, basically what the interest costs. So let's clip that right now. Tell the committee and Canadians how much we're spending or projected to spend on interest on the debt this upcoming fiscal year. Um, just looking for the number. Let me just say, because I think it's important to put things in context, that in Minister, both... Minister, my time is very limited. I'm asking if you know the number. You have a lot of officials beside you. Will you tell Canadians how much we're going to spend on servicing the debt next year? Here's what I think that it's really important to put numbers in context. Without context, numbers are meaningless. Our debt service charges are low in Canada's his, in historical context, and they are low compared to what our peers in the G7 Thank you for the paying. context. What's the gross dollar value we're going to spend on interest on the debt next year? And let me again, I really am opposed to fiscal fear-mongering by the Conservatives. And so the important point to make for Canadians is that in historic context, our debt service charges are reasonable and sustainable and lower than they have been in many previous years. That's why S&P reaffirmed our AAA rating. I'm asking, will you tell Canadians how much we're spending on the debt? There's, it's, it's on, it's in black and white, in your book. Is it? Do you just not want to say? I think that it's important okay. to put all numbers in context. Th- thank you. And, so I'll move to the next question. And, and do, do you not agree that in historic context, our debt service charges are absolutely handleable? Okay. So, Rich, I think this brings up uh, an interesting point here. Um, not so much, again, try to stick away from the, stay away from the politics of it, but a lot of the government deficit, uh, you know, the boring that was done during the pandemic, uh, I believe over 65% of it, uh, the debt issuance was less than five years. So the government effectively borrowed mostly on a short, short-term duration. And so as these as this debt sort of matures, um, the, the cost of servicing this debt is going to be more expensive. I don't know if you want to walk us through those dynamics. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, every government obviously borrows and they borrow from the market and they have to pay interest on that debt. And the more you borrow, you know, the more interest payments you have. However, Christina Freeland, and you're not, you're not going to hear me say this very often, but she's right in one sense in that what matters is the percentage of interest payment relative to the size of the economy. And so, you know, Mr. Chambers was right in the sense that it's good that he's asking that question. And I think her attitude towards that question, I think is 
kind of, you know, that I don't agree with that. I think she's wrong. I think that's a totally fair question. But I would submit that Mr. Chambers sort of missed the, the trick in a sense, because it doesn't matter what the actual number is, whether it's 40 billion or 10 billion or whatever. What matters is two things. One, what percentages of it of your economy or what percentage of your government revenues? And I can assure you that that's rising. And the next most important question, which is what is the future path of that number? So if we, if right now it's 10% of revenues and it's going to go down, then great. But if it's 10% of revenues and it's going to go up, then that's, and obviously the Delta is what matters, how high it's going to go up, when is it going to stop? And that's when the maturity point is what you were talking about, Steve, that's when that comes in. And that's where, you know, the real mistake that was made and I and this is not more Monday morning quarterbacking. If you go back on my Twitter feed all the way till in 2020, I have put that chart up and we rehashed it today, which is all of nearly all the debt issuance, depending on your time frame, was in the was under five years. And even most of that was actually under three years. So from February 2020 to January um 2022, um something like almost half of all the debt that was issued was a less than a three-year maturity. So why does that matter? Well, number one, interest rates, the three-year bond yield went from basically zero, not 0.2, whatever, not 0.5%. Not, not and now it's at, let's say, 4%, just to keep the numbers easy. So you have all of this debt that was issued, <laughs> that was issued at that time of crisis, whatever, whatever you might think about the spending, it doesn't matter. That was issued at the time. And now it's all coming to maturity, e.g. it's going to have to be rolled over. Now, the reason that it's just such an egregious, borderline negligent behavior from our dear finance minister is because what matters is you need to remember that the, the long end of the curve was also flat. So a 10-year bond in mid-2020 was also 50 basis points, right? The bond, the yield curve was flat. Short-term rates were the same as long-term rate. And so for some inexplicable reason, she borrowed all this money at the front end or the short end of the curve. Now, that's borderline negligent. It was a terrible decision. And I would reiterate that that's not true for many different countries. So if you look at the US, that's not what happened. They borrowed it much further out the curve, different countries in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And so that to me is where Mr. Chambers sort of missed the trick because it's about not what happened today, forget the past, but what's about to happen. And I think it's and where what's about to happen is we're going to refinance basically about, I don't know, almost... I want to say quick, quick, quick math is like something like three or four hundred billion dollars worth of debt, um, you know, and it's all going to be at four or five times the interest rate charge that we were doing it just a couple of years ago. So there you go. That's the wrap up there. But Boomer, they should have called you. <laughs> it was uh, I mean, I saw that clip as well. And I think Rich just created a, a, another equally. Uh, attractive clip on your own uh, just then uh -oh. that, was, that was pretty good uh, i hope that was okay yeah yeah so let's answer the question then i mean it, you know the, the answer to the question uh it's about 35 billion dollars right yeah. and you say man that's you know it's a few more than i have of course and uh more than the king of kitslano however you, as richard you want to compare that you want to make it out a relative comparison and uh, it drives me absolutely bonkers 
when they compare themselves, I say they, when any country compare themselves to a, a peer group, so like, oh, the G7, we have the best this of the G7, or you know, this, what, you know, it's just, it's not relevant, right? Let's look after our, our own house here. But in, in Canada, I know that the 35 billion right now, and, and again, the numbers can get pushed around quite a bit. So if we're off by one or two, you know, don't go crazy on us here. Um, but that's about eight to 10% of tax revenues that are coming in. So it's a big chunk, right? It's also uh, by comparison, so 35 billion, they're budgeting 26 billion as a childcare expense. So we're okay. spending more on interest expense than we are on children, Canadian children, childcare. Interesting. You know, again, yeah, it, it's 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 unbelievable. Um, the healthcare transfers to the provinces is about forty-five billion, so it, it's almost equal to what that number is. And uh, I don't have it here, but I know uh, when I looked at this back before the pandemic, um, you know, the the interest burden was roughly then equivalent to what auto was spending on both healthcare and again what was spending on on can education. we just chime in on the real world like implications of that because you said 45 billion is uh healthcare transferred to the provinces i can tell you there's a bit of, a lot of news here in bc um the bc health minister has actually been transferring and sending patient cancer patients in 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 bc to the states for treatment because there's such a long backlog of uh people with cancer they can't get in to see these specialists so they're sending them to the u.s private health care to me that's just completely broken but uh he's sad but sad that's broke you know like i'm not a healthcare professional and um like some people that are close to me they are and one thing that we all have to appreciate is that the healthcare it's a publicly funded structure solution service whatever you want to call it and if you get inside that world and you're normally in the private sector the whole time, your head would spin around and just fall off your body. Like a lot of stuff just doesn't make sense. And, you know, again, people get uncomfortable with me saying this, but I think a lot of the expense challenges that we have in our healthcare system, it, it's cultural in that, first of all, and again, right, get, get mad at Boomer here, but I think all the jobs, well, not most of the jobs are unionized, okay? So you don't have very little flexibility with, with your wage cost going into it. Um, but then you, you have a lot of people working that are not doing something, you know, that, that's really strategically important, you know, for what, what the outcome is going to be. So there, I think there are lots of ways to immediately improve the system. I bet you there are a lot of procedures and processes that people have been doing them for years. doesn't matter what part of the healthcare system you're in, but if you strip them out, you go, Hey, it's, it's not important. Right? We don't even need to do that. So I think there are ways to improve it. To create avoid... efficiencies basically. Yeah, absolutely. Cause that's what all this is about. Right. I mean, the biggest one is like, there's no doctors available. You can say, well, you know, we have immigrants coming in who are definitely qualified to be doctors, but they can't get their licensing and, and stuff. I bet you, if you went to the uh, medical schools, just at the day one level, you go in there and again, and you say, well, it doesn't work that way, but jam in an extra five students, an extra 10 seats. And they'll say, well, we don't have the equipment for that in, in the labs. Then buy it. Do, do you see what I mean? Like there are ways to do things. 
but it, it's not happening. But this example uh, was happening with BC. So if I'm in BC, and I, I think what they did to send people down to the US to get treatment, of course you do that if you have to. Yeah. Right. You you take that hit. Do you, do you know what I mean? And if you well, just fired, yeah. I mean, I think it's just all that, interesting though. Yeah, it's it's a tough one, right? Because again, it's not like you know the you deal with mortgages, you know, or you know economic and macro strategy research and, and stuff, which is all very important, guys. But you know, when you're dealing with you know with with healthcare, you have to get something done. But it's a mess, and I, I don't know how they fix it. But that that move was quite interesting. It, it did catch my attention for sure. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's all like a relative game, right? People say, oh, well, it's whatever, 40 billion, the government can just, you know, print it, issue more debt and have the Bank of Canada buy it. And, and this, you know, MMT sort of theory. And I don't know, you just, uh, but that's, said, but that's so, so like, bring no it, let's such bring thing it back. as a free lunch. But let's bring it back to the, the, you know, the Minister of Finance. Like the, the issue is exactly that. The Bank of Canada, if people remember at the time, was, managing the yield curve was actively managing the yield curve so what does that mean so the bank of canada was printing money now they won't call it printing but that's exactly what it was they were creating reserves in order to print money and absorb the lending of the bank of canada they did at one point the they did almost government. of the yeah. federal excuse me of the federal government and at one point they purchased almost 90 percent of every single dollar that was issued i've shared the chart before i can share it again and the reason that's just so important and crystallizes how stupid it was to issue all of this debt at the front end of the curve, which is you were given an opportunity, right or wrong, by the Bank of Canada to issue debt 10 years out. So basically, extremely cheaply, especially if you, like some of us, thought that inflation was going to percolate and, and be sustained. But even if you thought inflation wasn't going to come up, to why would you, when you can borrow money for 10 years at, let's say, 75 basis points or two years at 65 basis points, the obvious answer is to do it long further out the curve. And, and, they, and they didn't. And it, that is a huge, huge mistake because now we the central bank is not the of Canada is not going to be able to that 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 trick is done the central bank of Canada will not be able to manage the yield curve that was a maybe one off or we have to wait till the next crisis or whatever but that was like in a, in a way in a sense a generational opportunity to lower your interest payment and to extend the maturity of the debt your country owed and instead of doing that, they literally did the opposite. And, and so, you know, we can forgive some people for making mistakes, but when you compound these mistakes one after another, I think it's, it's really kind of a fantastically, a fantastic own goal, as they would say in, in the UK, Steve. And it's, it's not something we should just forget about. This is an important, this person's job is important for crying out loud, you know? Like, okay, well, I got a couple of things to... Uh... <laughs> Go for Go it. Ahead. Sorry, I'll be quiet now. Yeah. What is what is a little bit of pushback on that? Actually, another one is a compliment towards it as well. See, maybe I should run for office. I can play both sides. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a very quick, sudden stop to the laugh. Oh, the sorry. Yeah, <laughs> we should get a laugh track for the podcast. We should get a laugh track <laughs> for you, anyways. You should you should get a laugh track. Well, we need it for Steve, right? Because you know, yeah. but uh, tough cookie to crack. <laughs> okay. 
Who do you guys remember the 100 year bond issuance? Yeah, Austria. Yeah. 100 so year bonds, no? They issued, yeah, 100 years. So this is exactly what Rich is, is talking about. Here, here are these guys, the Austrians. You know, they have their own school of economics, apparently. And uh, yeah, laugh soundtrack. <laughs> there you go, laugh track. Yeah, in, in, insert laugh track here. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like Seinfeld and, and stuff. Um, but, you know, but here's an example of what is exactly what Rich is talking about. I don't know what the size of the issuance was. Uh, but they, they issued a 100-year bond during the pandemic. And it was spot on, you know, like none of us will be around when that thing has to be repaid and people won't even care anymore probably when, when that comes out. Uh, okay. So you have that there. So that, that's, that supports you know, the conversation, but the other part of the conversation it was a bit of a pushback for, uh, for us is that at the time you're looking, okay, where, where's the best place to lay this and what is, what are our expectations going forward? So at, at the time, remember, Somebody at the Bank of Canada didn't suggest they they flat out told us rates ain't going up for a very long time. So be comfortable maxing out your borrowing and it things to be okay. Right. Uh, so I think at the time, I, I don't have the data here, but if the overnight rate was at say 20 basis points, I, I bet you the 10 year was maybe 50, 70, Rich. I, I don't know what, what it was back then. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't, I'm mean, looking at it now. It's about that, whatever, less than 1%. That's right. Yeah, so it would have been that cost. Say you're paying 50 basis points to move out you know, that far. Okay, and you're saying, okay, hey, you know, we're really good with hindsight because we're, you know, it's hindsight. So let's look at this example today. So today we have the overnight rates. That, well, it's not a good example because now we have an inverted curve. But <laughs> <laughs> so there goes that example. Uh, but if we were here today and we had to borrow, you know, for a long, we're rolling debt over and given the information that we currently have, and, and, and by the way, I want to go through something else. So I went through the, uh, I don't know what they call it, whatever the, the minister of finance, whatever they, they push out with all these numbers on it that we're quoting. Uh, I have some things I want to go through, but I think they're uh, over the next five years, their estimate for the 10 year is around 3%. And one, one thing, I mean, we can be pretty critical of a, of a lot of things, of course, uh, but one thing that they do, like they come up with their own number, but they also publish what all the big bank economists are publishing, uh, what some of the other sell side places are, are publishing. And they tend to come with, you know, like an, an average of those rates. So they're not creating their own rate. It will be a little bit different, but for the next five years, up to 27, 28 fiscal year, I believe it is. Uh, they're using 3% on, on the tenure, which I think is where we are today, correct? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, in, in that range. So the question is, you know, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna borrow right now, do I think, hey, the tenure will be at 3% over the next five years? Uh, that's the decision to make. And my my suggestion is zero <laughs> remember steve carell zero zero chance that's going to happen uh but that's what they go but i also want to share one more one more thing with you to, to give you an idea because we're talking about you know numbers and, and revenues and where we're spending money and stuff like that i want to read out to you what's actually in this publication that comes out this is how they view the economy by they i mean the um the, the uh it's the liberals now they're in power so here we go. Uh, they break it down by uh, budget measures. And these are the categories. Making life more affordable and supporting for the middle class. 
They also break it down by investing in uh, public health care and dental care. That, that, that's fine. They also want to invest in a Made in Canada plan. Uh, another one is advancing reconciliation and building a Canada that works for everyone. So they have hard data attached to that. They also want to make sure uh, to ensure Canada's leadership in the world. I don't know what that means. They want to ensure with their spending that they can have an effective government and improving services to Canadians. Sounds and they good. also want, yeah, I don't know what, exactly what an effective government is anymore. Uh, and I think as Steve, you know, suggested improving services to Canadians, that's probably not happening either. Uh, and then, you know, they also want a fair tax system. But in my world, we would have our tax revenues, we're spending money here, there, and there, and you're going to come out with, with your net and, and so forth. But again, they're, they're grouping our tax revenues and our expenditures. And some of these like very soft, squishy, feel good type categories, which is, you know, then, then you get that, you know, government talk back when you ask a question and you say, how can you spend that much on this? And then the answer is, well, you know, don't you want children to go to school or don't you want to save the planet? You just can't quantify it. But that I suggest everyone go read the document and it'll give you an idea of what, what's super important which was what is there now. And this is called, by the way, uh, it's an annex one details of economic and fiscal projections. And that's exactly what you would want to have, but inside the numbers are a bit squishy. So to round it all out, <clears throat> suffice to say that, uh, if you're a Canadian who took out a variable rate mortgage during the pandemic, <clears throat> myself included, uh, you don't need to feel too bad because Krista Freeland uh, and the federal government made the same mistake, but on a much larger scale. Um, but that does bring me to our next point, which is uh, actually on the on the mortgage uh, trigger rates to kind of round things out. Um, there was a good report out from Desjardins this week, which uh, showed that more than 75% of all variable rate mortgages in Canada have now breached their trigger rate. Um, and it's a very, very interesting detailed report. Um, but basically what they, essentially what they say is in order to keep monthly payments the same on renewal, so all these variable people coming up for renewal, um, in order to keep monthly payments the same on renewal, assuming the borrower makes no lump sum payments, the amortization would need to extend to almost 40 years, four zero in many cases. Uh, so this is kind of this uh, interest deferral cliff, similar to the mortgage deferral cliff that we had during the pandemic. Um, but that's that's something to sort of keep an eye on. Um, interestingly enough, we actually had the Bank of Canada's financial stability report out. Uh, it says the release of their, uh, I think it's an annual financial system review. Is that correct, Keith? Oh, I don't know. Annual or quarterly? Anyways, the release of the financial system review, uh, and they noted that... Uh, only about one third, one third of mortgages in Canada have seen an increase in payments compared with February 2022. So basically, suffice to say, in sh to, to basically one third of all the mortgages in Canada have only actually succumbed to the pain of higher interest rates. So this is kind of the long lag effect of monetary policy. It has not fully fed through into the system. 
I have a question to bring it home to you. Do, do you see clients and stuff or do, you, do do people that you speak to every single day, do they feel that coming through the system? I mean, and how have you personal, can I ask a personal question? How, have, how has the higher mortgage rate affected your actual personal spending? Or I know you're the king of Kitsilano, but I mean, it must sort of uh, affect your decisions on your discretionary spending and stuff, or has it not? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that, I think psychologically you're always like, yeah, man, like, in hindsight, gone, would have gone back. But I think everyone's circumstances are like a little bit differently. Like, for example, I went variable because I was working. I, I think I'm only going to be here very short term. And it's like, I want the flexibility to be able to like sell, leave. And, you know, if I want to go and rehab a new project, I can go rent for six months and not have to pay a huge mortgage penalty. So it's always like individual circumstances about why they might go fixed versus variable. But I can tell you like anecdotally having conversations with like clients or just random people that will call me up and say, Hey, this is my situation. Like there are a lot of people depending on your bank that are, are basically not even paying all of their interest. Um, and what they're doing is they're allowing the interest to accrue to the balance of the mortgage. And so this is a very popular program. I think it's at TD. I believe, I believe BMO has the same program. I think even CIBC as well is they'll allow you to basically, uh, they'll allow you to grow the balance so long as I think you're under an 80% loan to value threshold. So, and from, from what I'm seeing is I think most people are saying, mm, I, I'm not ready to, to fix this problem. I'm, I'm going to let it play out and hope that rates are lower or just maybe my, my job, my income will rise over the next three, four years, or I'll just have to refi and re-extend the amortization on renewal if I can qualify. I have a question as well. What about uh, from a property tax perspective, are you seeing a lot of assessed values have increased over the last year? Yes. Um, yeah, they have. I mean, I think those, because the problem is, is those obviously assessments are a lagging indicator. So they take values from basically a year ago. Uh, you know, it's funny enough. And I think we, I don't know if we chatted about this on the show, but in Metro Vancouver, right? There has been this, of course, large shortfall um, from municipal governments, which I'm curious again, because as interest rates rise, the cost of servicing debt for municipal governments, provincial governments, federal governments is going to rise. And so thus tax revenues must increase to sort of offset that is they've been passing on this larger burden of, of rising residential property taxes onto homeowners, which is creating this burden. And so what they've apparently voted to do about three, four weeks ago, maybe is they said, okay, well, we are now going to pass these tax revenue increases onto the developers. So the burden is going to be too large for seniors in the home to pay property taxes. So let's just make developers who are building new product, let's just add those into the DCC's development cost charges. So again, as a government that obviously is talking about creating more new housing supply, we need supply, immigration's too much, da 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 we've got a housing shortage, rents are going up. What are they doing? They're passing on, they're increasing costs for new supply. And around in circles we go. <laughs> Do you see a way out of it? Do you see like if, if we come back to you in two years from now, do you think housing starts will be higher or lower for when they are now? I mean, do you, do you see that 
I mean, where does the end, what's the end game? I mean, I know you called the bottom a couple of uh, months ago. Congratulations to you. But do you see just like it just goes on and on and on until even if we have a recession and it just forever and ever and never goes down ever again? I mean, I'm just curious about where it all ends up. I mean, I think like I think the housing supply thing is going to be very tricky to fix. I think that governments are starting to make some positive decisions, which is, you know, city of Toronto. And I think like, it looks like the province of BC are now going to basically eliminate single family zoning, but that's not an overnight fix because the numbers are still hard to pencil. Even if you go duplex, triplex, et cetera. Um, and it's always like on the private sector, right? There has to be this risk reward. So if we keep talking about, Oh, like maybe inflation isn't coming down and rates have to go up again. Um, that, that, that muddles the outlook for a private investor to say, well, do I really want to launch a new product in that kind of uncertain environment? So uh, yeah, I'm really struggling to see like the housing supply issue being resolved in the next five years. I think though, the other answer to this is you can say, uh, I think I might get this right now. Uh, Central bank digital currencies fix this. Right? <laughs> what can they fix? Like <laughs> Yeah, they can fix everything. Uh, my response to your question, Rich, is I believe that the probability of, of a major debt restructuring taking place on a global basis is, is is significantly high. And I'm not quite sure how it would look or feel, but that's the end game with this. And whether it's one year from now or you know five or 10 years, I'm not quite sure, but it's just not sustainable. You you can't remember we went through like basically a forty year cycle, not a complete cycle, a forty year because the other end would be the complete cycle, right? Right. Uh, but a forty year trend of like basically twenty percent in rates down to zero, and then they kept rates at zero or negative for almost fifteen years, basically. You know, and that was a good period to sort of lull everyone to sleep and that rates can never go higher. So now we're going to go in the other direction again. So to complete the cycle, all that debt that's been uh, enabled because of lower rates, like it's, it has to be an adjustment here coming up. And so you have adjustments on the private sector side, which is housing, and then also on the, on the public sector side. And to make adjustment on the public sector side, it's actually quite easy. You know, that that 10 year bond becomes a what number Steve? 12 year 12 year bond yeah that you know 10 year bond that pays a five percent coupon becomes a 10 year bond that pays a two percent coupon right there, there are things that the public sector would mint would the coin first yeah, they can mint. What is that? I say, can you quickly explain that idea? I oh, see. I've no. read it. I've read it about it, but I, I can't recall what it. Exactly I don't. Is. I have no. I, I don't understand it well enough. Sorry. Yeah, I think it's like door the explorer sprinkling <laughs> stuff around. It, it doesn't I, work. I should know, but I don't. I have no idea how. But the works. other opportunity that the public sector has with with the debt is simply you do a, a debt for equity swap, and. I mean, like every country out there, and it doesn't matter the Western world or even the emerging market world, that there, there's so many assets that are owned by the public, but by the government or the country that can be monetized in, in certain ways, you know, for the private sector. Because remember, the private sector has excess savings. That's just what we have. And um, so th there are ways that we can do that kind of a swap and that would resolve everything. 
but for the private sector, it's a tough one. So, um, you know, again, like we're backed into a corner. I say we, I mean like humans that, you know, we need shelter and you know, nice stuff and everything. Uh, and to do it, you know, you have to borrow money usually. But, you know, I would just suggest to everyone, you know, just, you know, stay over your skis, right? Don't go out too far. So what happens, nope. Rich? I have to be going too far. You get a scar on your forehead that won't go away. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It, it's it's there. Just, uh, just there's there's another way. There's another way that this debt resolves itself. You don't like this answer, Keith. I know you don't like this answer, but you inflate it away, just don't like every. Uh... <laughs> when has that every... ever happened? It's what do never you mean? Through, through time, ask the Romans. I mean, the Romans inflated their debt away. I mean, we, the we're getting defaulted. into. The... The Romans they defaulted. Def- first, first they inflated yeah. it away, and eventually yeah. they defaulted. But first, you inflated, and if that doesn't work, then. But anyway, that's a basement. conversation for that's a current. That, yeah, exactly. That's a conversation well, for a different. Yeah, absolutely. Day. But think about this today. Here we are. You know, we've gone through two years or three years of inflation hell, and guys, it's not really inflation hell. Like inflation hell was back in the seventies. Yeah, my mom always says that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I remember back then, it was tough. But uh, you, you think about it over the last two to three years, you know, they're saying, oh, we can just you know, inflate our debt away. Well, we've inflated a lot of stuff. And what happened with debt? So the way you inflate your debt away, you need GDP growth to go faster than nominal, nominal GDP growth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like none of that's happening at this point in time. So I always push back when you know, that, that's what they that's what they teach you in business school. And- <laughs> It doesn't work, guys. Get out and kids. If you're at university, drop out. Experience <laughs> the real world. Okay, you guys ever seen that chart I've posted on Twitter? I've uh, hit Solano real estate priced in gold. It's like it's no, been, no, no. It's like Vancouver, share it again, Vancouver. Share it again. Yeah, you could do the same chart for Canadian real estate. If you actually price it in gold over the last like two decades, it's prices have been falling. Okay, interesting. It's an interesting exercise because I think it just kind of. To your point, I think it's more of a debasement story than than it is like houses. Yeah, but when are getting... I price it in the stock market, like when I price <laughs> it in, you know, I I see those charts all the time as well. And by the way, like we hold gold in our portfolios, like we're we're not gold bugs, you know, we don't love it or hate it. And uh, I think there is a. I just think it's an always... interesting concept, you know. Yeah, I think though. I mean, the the challenge with the gold market is that people who love it have always loved it and they will always love it. Like there's never a, a change. So they always, it kind of goes back to the, you know, we're looking at the inflation data. The Twitter early. crowd loves gold. Yeah. It's like religion. And, it's like yeah. religion. You don't, you don't discuss, you don't discuss gold in polite company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know other gold guys are ticked off with the crypto guys, right? Cause crypto is still yeah. the market share. Anyway. Yeah, that's right. But it's, you know, again, you go back to like, like, for example, right now, gold is off gold hit 20, uh, sorry, 2050, yeah. 70, maybe there. It was at, at an all time high in Canadian dollars just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And back then was on, you see, oh, it's going to 3000. No, it's going to 4000. <laughs> oh, wait, I'm going to go, I'm going to up you. I'm going to say it's going, you know, you're doing this. Now, here we are, we're a hundred bucks off and gold and silver and, and the miners, like they're just getting absolutely smoked and, and crushed and this is at a time when you would think oh man like the american debt ceiling is going to implode everything and, and Keith, don't way, you know it's manipulated <laughs> yeah it, it's all i mean it, it's got to be it has to be at least somewhat manipulated but 
to what extent is interesting. Okay, so I mean, there's there's lots of ways that all markets can be manipulated, right? And it depends, of course, you know, you want to make things real easy. You get it to define what manipulation is. So once you define that, then, you know, you can do whatever you want. But like recently, for example, like one of the narratives I've seen is that, you know, uh, certain circles in the U.S. financial system, you know, they, they've basically been selling volatility. They've been pushing volatility lower. And if, if you push just simply that the VIX index lower or anywhere on, on, the, on the curve for VIX, automatically, you know, that acts as a way to push up equity markets. You push up equity markets, everyone is making more. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of ways that different markets can be twisted and turned. And maybe I'm wrong by saying this, but when when you do it, so say you 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 crush volatility lower and everyone makes more money in the stock market, everybody's happy, right? You know, your stock portfolio is going up and it, it's really cool. If manipulation took place in the gold market, say the gold market came down from like 2000 to, you know, pick your number, um, you know, besides people who are holding a lot of gold and they fall all the time, they're going to be hurt, but the rest of the market doesn't care. Because you don't get a lot of other markets that are linked directly or indirectly to gold. So that's that's why I said, you know, if gold is being manipulated, I know there's a lot of, you know, really good data to suggest that it is. But I think it's yesterday's battle, yesterday's war. Kind of like Rich, you know, with the inflate your inflation story away. YouTube comments are going to be going crazy here. Yeah, I know. I know. A lot of gold bugs on there too. Yeah, yeah. And we hold gold, by the way. Yeah, I like have a gold not... coin. I have a single gold coin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Star Trek, they have platinum. Isn't it platinum what they held in Star Trek? Oh, I don't know. There's no money in Star Trek because they have a a replicator. There Come on, Keith. No. Oh, though? No. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. No. <laughs> Mark and the, for, for, Stay tuned uh, for next week while we just go and yeah. argue about the monetary <laughs> policy <go> in 2400. <laughs> You go to st- anyway, it is there. Quark forget, used to, yeah. uh, he sells it at his bar and, and that stuff. Forget right. about gold. Hey, you're, Boomer forget watches go- Star Trek as well. I know everything. Yeah, for, forget about gold. Your central bank digital currency is coming, and that's all you need. So uh let's uh it's a good place to wrap it up. Uh as always, guys, we do appreciate your support. All we ask is that you leave us a uh Hopefully a five-star review on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Share this with at least one friend or family member. Continue to build the Looney Hour community. Appreciate your support. And we'll see you next week.